Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers. In the 40th episode, we spoke about testing business ideas. How do you take a business idea or a product idea and build experiments around it to drive down risk? So I spoke with David J. Bland, who is the founder of Precoil, which is a company specializing in this type of experiments, basically helping companies find a product market fit. And he's worked with companies like GE, Toyota, Adobe, HP, etc. Recently, David decided to put his knowledge down and to write a book. So he co-authored the book called Testing Business Ideas, which explains the process behind experimenting um, with business ideas And it also serves as a catalog because it has 44 different experiments explained, how you use them, when you use them, etc. So in this podcast, I talk with David uh, about the three types of risks that uh, new product and business ideas are facing. And we talked about how we can design experiments for these risks and how we can string together a whole experiment sequence to design better products. Just one more thing before diving into the episode. So one thing that helps you with uh, designing these experiments is also understanding better the business, the business of your company or the business that you're trying to build. So um, if you want to learn more about that, you can also join the seven-day mini MBA, which is an email course, which over seven days teaches you a few fundamental and basic principles of business. So you can find that on beyonduser's.com. And now, without further ado, here's a conversation with David. David, thanks for joining us in the Beyond Users podcast. Could you maybe, to kick things off, tell us a little bit about yourself and your company, Precoil? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. So I'm out in the San Francisco Bay Area in the United States. And, you know, the company Precoil kind of got started um, as an offshoot from the last company I was at, which was uh, called Neo, NEO. And... We had kind of uh, the backing of Eric Reese, who wrote Lean Startup, and Ian McFarlane. And we had um, Jeff uh, Gothelf and Josh Seiden, who wrote Lean UX, and Gif Constable, who wrote Talking with Humans. We had a lot of amazing talent uh, all together in that company. And when we were being acquired, I decided, um, hey, I'm going to do my own thing for a while. And and I created Precoil. And really, the premise behind it was, hey, can we help people test their business ideas, test their product ideas before investing all their money in it. And so mm-hmm. mostly I work with um, big companies now, you know, um, but I still work with startup accelerators out here in Silicon Valley and um, startup founders a little bit too. So I try to stay connected to both because they're, you know, they're both struggling with how do we test something new and reduce the uncertainty in it. So, but uh, yeah, it's a lot of lean startup design thinking, mm-hmm. business model generation work. So usually when you start a, a company, it comes out of your own frustration. So, um, it would be nice to hear, you know, what kind of mistakes you've made with testing the business ideas or what what did you see in the market? What what made you start the pre-coil? Well, I think when people try to test their ideas, they're still jumping to build way too quickly. And the way they test the ideas, um, they're kind of three things they do. They do some interviews, maybe do, you know, five interviews or so. They may do some surveys. So they do surveys with more people, but survey design is some, you know, there's always kinds of challenges in survey design. And they might do a landing page or something. And when you do a landing page, it's like, okay, well, how do you drive the right people to it? Are you measuring things? Are you, what's your conversion rate? Is your value prop, you know, solid and all that? And 
and that was it, you know, and even landing page seemed like a more advanced usage out there. And there's just so much more available in the market to you to match, you know, um, designing experiments to whatever kind of risk you have. And so um, that was kind of the premise of starting the company and also um, for the book that I just finished, it's about to go live, uh, is just giving people more options because um, those things are, while being awesome to run, they don't always um, address your risk. So what's maybe the most common mistake people make when they're testing business ideas or just product ideas in general? I, I think it's um, setting the bar too low. So, you know, if you look at experimentation as just a step to something you want to build anyway, um, then it's not really going to give you the returns that you want. So if you're not open to being wrong and you set the bar really low and you say, hey, we're going to interview 20 people and if one person wants it, we're going to build. Or if we're, mm -hmm. you know, launching, let's say you go back to that landing page and you launch that landing page, but if you get a conversion on your call to action of like, you know, 1% or 2%, you're going to build. <laughs> and, and and so I think people could set the bar higher. They could say things like, well, we need like a 15% conversion on our landing page or we're not going to go forward. Or they can set the bar high and say, if we interview 10 people, we need eight of them to agree to this. And, and that'll at least challenge your notion that, you know, you're right. And, and I just feel like we need to do a better job of that. Otherwise, we just we just kind of go through the motions of experimentation, but we don't necessarily really learn a lot because we don't want to be wrong. And then we just want to build whatever we <laughs> build anyway. So I think you have to be open to the idea of being wrong. Yeah. And that's, that kind of brings us to the whole confirmation bias. Like if you don't set a bold enough goal, or if you don't even set like a strong hypothesis in the beginning, you're just going to find a way to confirm that, Hey, I should go forward with this. Right. Yeah. There was a saying, um, I first heard it from Jeff Patton, but I'm not exactly sure where he got it from, but it was uh, design like you're right, test like you're wrong, which is, you know, yeah, sure, you can act like you're right, and but when you test it, test like you're trying to prove yourself wrong. And I, I feel instead what people do is they kind of design like they're right, test like they're right, yeah. <laughs> just because they don't want to don't want to be wrong. What I, what I love to do with these experiments is uh, exactly to your point, like set the bar so high that when I reach this bar, then it feels like, oh, I really have to follow through now. So maybe that also kind of brings me to the next question, which is how do you know what the good enough benchmark is? So you're saying that people do not set the bar high enough. How do you know where the bar should be? It's, it's tough. And it, sometimes it varies by your industry. Um, even coming back to something like a landing page again, um, when you're doing a landing page, your conversion rates probably vary by industry. So you have to kind of do some research. I use 15% as just an overall baseline, but then you might want to dig in and say, okay, well, um, there, there's some people publishing that data now. If you go to services like Unbounce, um, who they're, they're basically like a landing page builder, but they do more. They have analytics and A-B tests and some other integrations. If uh, they're starting to publish their data and their trends um, based on what they've seen from, you know, um, thousands and thousands of landing pages being launched through them. And you can start looking through their reports and say, okay, well, I'm in fashion. So this is my conversion rate baseline compared to other pages, or I'm in real estate. This is what my conversion, the baseline should be. Um, so it, it, I think that's what makes it hard too, is because depending on your industry and the kind of test you run, uh, it's not always obvious. So mm -hmm. you have to kind of factor in things like strength of evidence and how long you're running the test and do you have the right people coming into the test and um you know i, I think even with serving with which setting a baseline there's also this idea of 
Well, if we talk to people, that's we can set the bar high, but it's still relatively weak evidence. But if people are doing things and paying for it, that's relatively strong evidence. So um, the way I've tried to organize this with people in the past has been, you know, look at the kind of experiment you're running and look at what kind of evidence it's going to generate and just be mindful of, is this going to be weak evidence that we're going to get qualitative feedback that maybe we can use in a follow-up experiment, like quotes and things uh, such as that from customers? Or is this a really strong uh, sense of evidence where we're going to, you know, take people's money for a pre-order or, you know, they're, um, they're paying for the service. So I think uh, even having that framing alone can help people out instead of just kind of doing something and seeing what happens. Do you have any may, uh, like real world case studies that you can share with us, with listeners? Uh, maybe like a good case study, how somebody validated their business idea and maybe a bad case study of how somebody thought they actually have a validation, but actually it wasn't really validated. Yeah, I mean, I can share some in the book. We have some case studies as well, but um, there's a company out here in San Francisco I really like called uh, Topology, where basically they do a um, like a virtual selfie of your face and measure your face, and then they can custom create um, eyeglasses to fit exactly your measurements. So think of think of it as custom glasses for your face. Mm-hmm. So they have an app, you measure your face, and then you just you know basically choose what glasses you want. And but it's all very new, and they were they had some big assumptions. So one of the things they did to run an experiment was they did a pop up store out here in San Francisco, and so they uh, kind of rented some space uh, downtown, and they uh, intercepted people on on the street, and they pulled them in to the to the store, um, and they learned all kinds of stuff from from running that kind of pop up store experiment. And they only did it for a few days uh, at first, but they ran hundreds of those later on. But they, they wanted to know qualitatively, you know, do people understand the problem? Do they understand kind of the pains behind why their glasses don't fit? Do they even have that problem at all? Do they, do they exhibit, is there observable evidence around the symptoms that they have this problem? Um, do they have some kind of um, barriers to entry with people not trusting the technology? Do they have um, some uh, the willingness to pay? Even though early on they weren't trying to pre-sell, but during the experiment, people wanted to buy, to buy the glasses and, and they kind of had them behind a case. So they were just kind of walking people through how to use it and everything, but they weren't really trying to sell. Um, but they ended up like people wanted to buy them on the, um, uh, during the experiment. So it's just really interesting, you know, as you can kind of decompose things down into, okay, let's do a pop-up store, but what are we trying to learn from a pop-up store? And they measured all kinds of things, qualitative feedback, the people they were able to bring into the store, how many people were willing to give up their email, how many people wanted to buy. <laughs> it was all kinds of really interesting data. And what they ended up doing was they ended up using a lot of those quotes in their marketing copy, in their ads, in their landing page. And they ended up um, running a series of these just to learn more and more about the customer because the technology pretty much worked, but all their risk was around like, people not trusting, not trusting the solution. And, mm. and so I thought they were very thoughtful. And that's one of the reasons they're a case study in the book is because I thought they were very thoughtful on how they kind of tested their way through uh, something as disruptive as, oh, I can measure my face virtually and, and get custom glasses. Mm. How do you know, though, what you should test? I mean, you said they were testing dozens of things, right? And with any business idea, you can be really testing you know, how much people are willing to pay for something, 
how well can I do it? Can I even do it myself? Um, et cetera, right? So how do you choose the right test for the right time? Yeah, it's it's more of an art, um, but I use a couple exercises to help guide people into what to test. So one of the things I do is uh, something called assumptions mapping. So basically the history of this exercise was, um, like I said, I work with Jeff and Josh who wrote Lean UX uh, and they're amazing and I learned so much from working with them. And they had this exercise in Lean UX called assumptions mapping, or it may have been what they were called or hypothesis mapping, but it was a two by two. And it was just to prioritize your hypotheses basically. and um, I liked it, but then I felt like, well, people still get stuck on this exercise. So I started kind of riffing on it and, and changing it and uh, while, while I was at NEO. And what I ended up doing was pulling in design thinking. So I said, look, if we can ask the right questions or facilitate a canvas and have people understand what's my desirability assumption, so kind of the do they question from design thinking, uh, what are my viability assumptions? So, you know, should we be working on this? So financially, is, is, is this a business or something that's sustainable? And then feasibility. Um, and, and while I like old school design thinking, I broaden feasibility, not just to technical feasibility, but to overall feasibility. Like, can we actually run this business? <laughs> it's not just if the tech works. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. there's infrastructure or regulations that get in the way that prevent you from e- executing. But that, those three themes kind of work, desirable, viable, feasible. And what I've done over the years is, is pull that into the mapping exercise and been tweaking it for like across hundreds of teams. And so what happened is um, I came up with this exercise, which is part of um, Google's design sprint kit now, and it's been used um, by organizations all around the world. And it, it's just a simple two by two where we say, okay, let's map out where our risk is. Um, so how important is it? And then how much evidence do we have that this is true? And once you do that and you have a theme, then you can start understanding basically where your risks. So you're looking for things that are really important that you have no evidence to support. (laughs) So this is kind of what Eric Ries would call it, like your leap of faith assumption in lean startup, which is if this is proven wrong, like we're in trouble. It's it's, this thing isn't going to work at all. And so um, what I do is I facilitate that exercise. And then what comes out of that is, okay, well, we have some really important things with no evidence. Is it around the customer? Is it around the pricing? Is it around like feasibility? Can we do this? And then I use that as a focusing mechanism for teams. And then we design experiments to match what kind of risk they have. So like if you have desirability risk, you're probably going to do customer focused stuff. But if you have back end feasibility risk, you know, all the interviews and landing pages and surveys in the world aren't going to help you. You need to do more prototyping. You need to do maybe uh, some some partners, like going through your partners and seeing who can help you. You need to maybe do some like 3D printing out the hardware solution. There's all kinds of backend stuff that you could do. So that's my hack is to facilitate a conversation to get people to understand where their risk is and then design an experiment that matches um, to matches a risk. So I, I guess this facilitation is really important because if you forget or miss certain risks, you're risking, so to say, the whole project. So I'm just curious to know, how do you facilitate these workshops in a way that you really gather and f- identify all the different risks? So the short answer is we're always wrong to an extent when we do it. Um Basically, we can't necessarily just keep analyzing and find all the risk. We have to have momentum. We have to go run things and see if we're wrong. Um, Another thing I do is 
uh, have a cross-functional team in the room or a balanced team. So mm-hmm. basically, uh, design is represented in the room, design leadership, but also product and also engineering or, or legal if they need to be there. So you have a more well-rounded view of what's important. So, you know, my my challenge to your audience would be, you know, if you're in a room with, with designers, um, ha- invite other people to participate in this because if you only facilitate it with design in the room, you're going to come out with a, a really skewed idea of what's the riskiest part. And so it's usually around desirability and fit and everything. And that's all well and good. And we should certainly test for that. But if you can't build it at all, like that's, you know, that's even, you know, if people want it and you can't build it, that becomes the riskiest thing. So, you know, what I recommend is having a uh, kind of a balanced team in the exercise. And then you hit it from all three angles where mm-hmm. you're saying, okay, what are our feasibility risks? Financially, what are our viability risks? Also, you know, what are our desirability risks? And um, so that helps. And then just making progress. So if you think this is the riskiest thing, then go test it, go check. And if you're wrong, it's not the end of the world. You can course correct if you do it quickly. Um, but it's more important to make progress than to just overanalyze everything and just become paralyzed and not make any progress at all. So once we identify the risk, um, I guess the next step is then designing experiments. So how do you, once you identify the type of risk you're running, the probably the risk is assumption you have, how do you correctly then identify the not identify, but design the experiment. Yeah, and and that's one of the biggest gaps I saw and still see in in the market today, which is I can put an exercise out there under Creative Commons and people will run with it and they'll adapt it. And like I said, there are organizations all around the world running it. But if you don't know what experiment to run afterwards, it's only it only moves the ball forward a little bit. And so um, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. So the book has 44 different experiments cataloged with the taxonomy of uh, what kind of risks they uh, they address. And then they also have uh, strength of evidence, runtime, uh, setup time, cost, and just an overall description of what you can measure. So it's more like a textbook than anything else. It reminds me of um, game storming or innovation games or some of the other books out there, but it's much, much, more, for, much more focused on experimentation. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of the why I do so much advising work in workshops is because people have a hard time linking and designing a good experiment. So there are ways you can address it. One thing I do is we kind of use the we believe that dot, 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 you know, format for when we map out our risk. And then when we design the experiment, we make sure we shape that up into something that's specific and testable. So people always ask me, like, what's the difference between uh, an assumption and a hypothesis? And uh, assumption is basically, uh, they're very similar, except the hypothesis is testable and, and specific. And so if you have something that you've mapped out and, but it's not in a, like, it's not in a shape where you can do anything with it, then it doesn't really help you. So we go through and look at, you know, the assumptions we've written down and get them well formed into something that's testable. And then we basically design an experiment that would generate evidence to prove or disprove that. And then uh, in that, we design what are the success criteria and fail criteria. And then basically we run it and then we make, you know, we make space to synthesize the results and and learn from it and then go back to the map. So it's kind of, um, it's basically a scientific method, but it's kind of like scientific method applied to business. So it's very much building on top of Lean Startup and Lean UX and other, other methods out there. But there is an art to saying, okay, we all agree this is risky. 
can we phrase this in a way that we can test it? And then can we design an experiment where we can run it quickly to generate the evidence we need? And quickly is the key, right? Because if it takes you six months to run an experiment, the whole market's changed in six months sometimes. So there is an element of like, okay, what can we do next week to learn about this and build up kind of this incremental evidence over time? That's interesting. Like, let's say that I am facing a risk that actually kind of takes a long time to test. And that's probably the risk is assumption I'm running. Let's just have this as an assumption now. And then there's another risk that's super easy to to test. Which one would you suggest uh, testing first? The one that's riskier, but it's going to take more time and money or the one that's just faster to test? Yeah, I think it's, it's a tough trade-off. Um, I would almost say, can you find a quicker way to test the bigger one, right? So <laughs> I think, can you break that bigger one down into smaller things? And and I run into this a lot, you know, um, when I go to places like Singularity University, right? They're all, uh, I have to ask, I have to ask if they've, uh, their startups on the, in space or on earth, <laughs> you know, and they're going after exponential technology and stuff that's going to be around in 10 years. And that's great. If your feasibility is something that relies on uh, quantum computing or something, uh, then it's going to take some time to catch up to that. But what can you do in the meantime? Like, what can you do to know you're on the right path? And so what I try to do is just break these really big things down into smaller things. Um, so, um, So I gave a talk at NASA on space exploration and one of the things they were really concerned about was uh, putting a rover on the moon. And when you put a rover on the moon, there's all this stuff that needs to happen. And they were going to drive it into permanent shadow. So I don't know how to explain this, but basically there are parts of the moon that have never seen uh, sunlight <laughs> for the most part. And so the soil the, is kind of an unknown consistency, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you drive that really expensive rover into that soil, then uh, a couple things might happen. One, it might be fine. Um, another thing, it might get stuck. Another thing, it might completely like sink. It might be like quicksand. No one, no one knows because no one's really explored that part of the moon yet. So how do you design for that? How do you, you know, that's very big risk. You could spend years creating a mission, designing a rover. You put it on the moon and then it immediately sinks. <laughs> and then people <laughs> scream at you because you've like <laughs> wasted years of people's lives. Or not wasted, but you certainly, it's a big expensive way to fail. But there are all kinds of ways you could test for that, right? You could... Um, have different types of soil here on earth. You could run the rover in different consistencies. You could, uh, you could say, okay, well, we have this many second delay when we're controlling it manually. Can we course correct if it starts to sink in time, if we're manually creating it or coordinate or manually controlling it? Or can we, um, build something into the rover where it has a warning system when it starts to sink, it automatically backs out. Are there ways we could test the consistency before we drive that rover in? And so even with something as big as launching something on the moon and finding out, oh, did it work or not? And then finding out that moment and, and really pushing all your risk and snow plowing all your risk to the end, there are ways you can test it. So I really challenge people to say, uh, don't, don't kind of uh, create this false trade-off where it's something quick and easy and cheap but it's, it doesn't really help you test anything important versus something really big. It takes forever. And then you're going to find out if you're right or wrong in a very costly way. I, I do think there are some ways to even break those big things down into smaller things. Yeah. So the takeaway is to take the most important risk and then try to be creative with how you test it in a faster, cheaper way. Yeah. Makes sense. Another thing that you talk about in the book 
in the experiment phase is the difference between discovery and validation experiments. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So we made it a point with the book to not just focus on customer experimentation. And it is important. We're a big believer in being customer-centric, but there's more to your validating your ideas than just being customer-centric. So what we did is we kind of borrowed, again, from Steve Blank and how he has you know customer discovery, customer validation. We said, what if we go broader? And you know that was after months and months of iteration on the book. You know, we we basically try to categorize things a certain way around themes, and then we realized, you know, if you do something like a minimum viable product, then it can apply to all three themes. It could be desirable, viable, and feasible, mm-hmm. because you could uh, manually deliver it, you could charge for it, and you could see if the customer really wants this. And and so um, what we ended up finding out was, you know, that's that's kind of more of a validation type experiment. And so we kind of did this thing where we were theming it. And, and so everything's got desirable, viable, and feasible themes applied. But also, are you trying to validate something or are you more trying to discover? And it's not perfect, but it's it's pretty good way to organize things. Because in the beginning, you're probably doing more discovery exercises. Um, and, and that's something we've seen uh, in the market where people make mistakes is they jump to validation too early. So they haven't spent any time in the problem space, understanding the problem. And one of the challenges I think with lean startup is it, the, if you just look at it at the surface level, it feels like you're just loading it up with ideas to, to validate. And that's, you know, that's why we've in design thinking. Cause I feel like that's one, it's not the way you should probably interpret lean startup. And two, you should really deeply understand the problem and, and the space you're trying to explore. Otherwise you're just, you're still wasting time going through that loop uh, of build, measure, learn. So what we've uh, what we decided on was saying, okay, are there a group of experiments that are more open-ended discovery type experiments where you can discover is it is it desirable, is it viable, is it feasible? And then later on, are there validation type experiments where you're putting something out there in the world to validate? And, and so, if you had to kind of think this out as far as drawing it out on a whiteboard, it would be, hey, start with something really quick that's you know, maybe low strength of evidence that you could be open-ended and discover and then incrementally build up evidence over time into something that you're validating that'll provide you really strong evidence. So, um, you know, it's something we've been doing with teams for a long time, uh, both myself and my co-author, Alex Osterwalder. But we we had to find a way to communicate in the book where people kind of get it. So maybe to tie this difference between discovery and experiment, uh, discovery and validation experiments, with another concept you mentioned in the book, which is called the experiment sequence. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What is an experiment sequence? So an experiment sequence is really being able to string experiments together to overall have a better strength of evidence and strength of confidence. So for example, um, you know, depending on what industry you're in, you might start off with interviews, but then if you're in software, you might move really quickly to paper prototyping to some kind of clickable prototype and wireframe to um, something where it's concierge, where you're creating the thing behind the scenes with a, with a back, you know, with a front end that looks polished to then charging for it, you know, and doing some kind of mashup MVP. And so it's not always um, linear. And I, I try to stress that in the book, although it's hard to kind of visualize things sometimes without it looking linear. But the idea of, well, we can build off what we learned and then we can use what we learned in the next thing. And, and so uh, my, my advice here is not just to go out and you know, please don't create like a 20 experiment plan and go execute it. Right. <laughs> but 
you could certainly take what you've used, you know, even something simple as like going from interviews to landing page. You can take all those great quotes that you've written down in your notes from interviews and use them in your landing page copy. And using the voice of the customer, your conversions will probably get better. And it's not that you have to add more features. It's not that you have to add a better design. Sometimes it's just using the words of the customer. But I've seen time and time again where people do interviews and then they kind of just either don't go through the notes or they just throw the notes away. And, you know, really you can use these great quotes from that in your marketing copy and in your landing page and, and find out, you know, am I really resonating with a target customer? So um, the software was probably the easiest flow to think of because you can go from paper to something digital pretty quickly. In hardware, it might be a little different where you go into 3D printing to 3D print something to get tested in front of customers. Uh, you might do more backend validation where you're doing uh, interviews with partners and you're, you're having people sign letter of intent to, you know, put kind of what they said into something that's written, but maybe not legally contractually binding, but still a little better evidence. So uh, what we did with sequences, which is trying to kind of lay out a few, but really my goal with sequences is have people create their own and say, hey, for us, you know, let's not just whitewash, you know, the history and say, well, well there's like, we had an idea and then we uh, made a million dollars, right? It's, well, we had an idea, but then we, it was really messy and we kind of, like went through this maze to find out what was viable and um, just basically started to connect things together and be able to share them out in a way that's a common language. So I'm pretty excited about it. You know, I've tested a lot of that content out, you know, with, uh, with my advising, but also with blogs and stuff and people love it. It's just, um, I want people to think beyond just one experiment. I want them to think about, okay, what are the inputs of the experiment? What are the outputs? And then how do we use the outputs into the next thing we're trying to do? Mm, super interesting. So I'm just thinking how I could use that. And like one immediate question is how many experiments in advance should I be thinking? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, um, I certainly wouldn't think more than 12 weeks ahead as far as planning out. Mm -hmm. um, I like 12 weeks because if you run experiments for 12 weeks and there are there is no evidence whatsoever that people want this, that there's any business model around it and that you can do it, then you probably want to take a step back and really question whether or not you should go forward investing in it. Um, but at the same time, I don't want people only thinking one experiment ahead. And then if it fails they give up, you know, it's so much of my advising. It feels a little bit like therapy where I'm building people back up uh, and saying, no, no, it's okay. You know, like that the experiment didn't go really well, but that doesn't mean it's all is lost. And so you have to um, you have to have a vision, and you have to give yourself enough time to run enough experiments. So I would say if you say twelve weeks, and you know you run an experiment a week, then you know there's twelve experiments there. Now you may not actually go run all twelve. Things may change after the first week, and that's fine. But be thinking through how would I attack this problem from different angles and. Um, I was listening to Andreessen Horowitz kind of talk about this out here um, in Silicon Valley. And, and they, they were referencing this thing called the idea maze. And I'm, I'm pretty sure they did not come up, come up with it. Um, but this idea of yeah. they invest in entrepreneurs who have an idea and they go down a path and they hit a dead end or what seems like a dead end. But then they kind of turn and they start working on the idea and going down a different path until they find another dead end. And they really want to invest in people, not just to have an idea, but people that have 
really tested that idea, um, really understand the opportunity, know that idea inside and out, know the customers inside and out, and have kind of stress tested it. And and so they call it this idea maze, which I kind of like because it, it says that um, you've put more effort and energy into it than just one experiment. You've given it some thought. And, and so while 12 weeks isn't a perfect number, 12 weeks will give you enough evidence to know, hey, is there anything there? And um, in the past, I've helped, I've helped test out mobile apps. Um, and in 12 weeks, we had retaining customers. <laughs> so you can do a lot in 12 weeks too. Um, and that, can be, that, that went on to become a really successful app on the App Store. So, you know, uh, depending on your industry, you know, maybe some move faster than others, of course. But yeah, certainly be planning on and working on this and dedicating yourself on this for for at least uh, you know 10 12 weeks would well, this time frame so the time frame of 12 weeks get longer if i would be working in a bigger company and part of that question is also i mean the book is titled testing business ideas so i'm just curious and also from the conversation we're having it feels like this is pretty much geared towards new ideas is that true like or is this a process that you can also use in bigger companies with maybe more complex um, cases and challenges? Well, it's certainly slanted towards um, newer ideas. The idea that you're, you know, you have something that's new that you need, you need to know where to start and how to gain momentum and generate evidence. Um, in bigger companies, I do a lot of work, you know, if you kind of look at the horizon model, horizon one, two, and three, mm-hmm. um, horizon three being looking further out and trying something small and new and more innovative. Uh, I spend a lot of time there. Um, you could certainly use some of these techniques on stuff um, that are more traditional. It's just your risk is a little different, right? So your risk there is, uh, oh, you know, customers asked for a feature. Should we add this feature in or not? And um, I have this I have this drawing that kind of went viral uh, several years ago, which I called the product death cycle, which was uh, you kind of uh, ask customers what they're their what they want, and they tell you what they want, and you go build it, and they still don't use what you have. <laughs> and so, I'm sure everybody feels that. I think that's why it went viral because everyone feels that pain of oh, they said they wanted this, and then I just build it, and they don't care, and they still didn't use it. Um, so your job is really to get behind the you know the the job, so to say, a job to be done behind the, the thing they're asking for. And so you can certainly use design thinking there. You can certainly test your um, the idea of whether this feature should be added or not. But it's a slightly different application of, of the book and, and the process. But um, I'm focused more early stage. Um, I would say pre-product market fit. You know, if you found product market fit and you're scaling something, your risk is more around uh, probably viability and, and feasibility is not less. Is, I mean, desirability is still there, but it's much more about can you scale the thing. Um, so I think the framework still works for identifying risk, but a lot of the experiments are, are certainly geared towards uh, early stage stuff. Um, so one last thing that um, kind of bothers me is, let's say that I'm in a situation that I work with a client or within a company that's kind of not used to this process or they are kind of used to experiments, of course, but not to the extent of being as rigorous as you explain in the book. How do you get a client or a team on board for such such process? Yeah, it's it's hard. It's very cultural. Um, it's a very personal journey, right? Um, it's do you have a culture of if you're wrong, you're punished, or if you're on a failed project, you never get a promotion. So you do have to take the culture of the company in mind. Um, what what I'm optimistic about is I do see a lot of companies starting to 
shift from this idea of we're going to functionally silo everybody and create project teams and then only incentivize people on uh, releasing features and outputs. So I do see teams and companies being more thoughtful about, well, we're going to try to be cross-functional. That's not necessarily, you know, um, a controversial thing anymore. Uh, and you can scale it. I mean, Amazon's a pretty good example of that. And uh, we want to promote a culture where people can run something that doesn't work out and they learn from it and they're not punished for it. And and so on that, on that that through that lens, it's, it is very cultural. Um, culturally dependent on the company and the environment and um, personally you know even in different areas of the world people interpret failure very differently um, out here it, it's maybe kind of upside down world because you could create a company raise a hundred million dollars and crater it and people go wow that's amazing here's another hundred million go do it again and <laughs> if i go to some other country right and and go to even europe for example people are like uh, if this startup fails i'll never get funded again ever and just imagine, you know, the, the the pressure they have of I can't be wrong. So there is some culture and personal stuff. Uh, from a tactical point of view, it's more around can you make this repeatable? Can you do it more than once? So most teams I work with, they can design the experiment and run one, right? But how do you bake it into how you work? And usually my, my hook there is, okay, think of the stuff in your roadmap, in your strategy that you feel pretty nervous about and you feel uncertain about. There's probably a reason you're feeling uncertain about it. Wouldn't you want to know sooner rather than later you're on the right track? And um, I'm not very dogmatic about it. I'm very much, hey, what are you worried about? What's keeping you up at night? Okay, how would we go test that? And can we do that sooner rather than later? And can we balance that along with everything else we do? And so if I'm working with a completely new team, you know, they're slanted towards almost all discovery work. Uh, if I'm working with a team that's kind of been around a while, you know, they're probably on the hook to deliver things. But at the same time, you don't want to treat your backlog like a set of facts. You know, there are a lot of assumptions in your backlog. So can you just, as a team, map out where's our risk in our backlog and what can we do um, to go to go find out about that? And if you look at modern kind of agile software practices and, and writings, you know, I had to point to like Jeff Patton again. I'd also point to Marty Kagan. Um, people that are promoting kind of this dual track discovery delivery, I, I think they're they're promoting it because essentially you have risk and you need those capacity plan to go find it. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's controversial anymore. It's just more meeting kind of where your team is uh, about half step ahead of where they need to be. So for example, if they're just always doing delivery work, having that conversation of, okay, well, where are you nervous about in the backlog? Well, X, Y, and Z. Okay, well, how would we go test that? And could we capacity plan for that rather than just build it all over a series of sprints and release and hope for the best? And so I'm, uh, that's my style. It's more facilitative, but um, I certainly don't come in and say, oh, you know what? All these user stories, you've been doing this all wrong. Here's job stories, like recreate your backlog as job stories. Like that's a really guaranteed way to have people hate you. (laughs) So I'm much more, hey, where you are now, okay, you're not doing enough discovery. How can I nudge you in that direction? And what are the small things we could do to make that a repeatable process? And it's really just baking it into how you work. Because if you track this stuff and have a special team do it and all this other stuff in different locations, it it just will never become the way you work. So you have to kind of track it with everything else you do and you have to capacity plan for it. And it takes time, but most everyone wants to know they're working on something that matters. So it's just more of a, how do you fit it in? Um, and make space for it. And maybe you can even look at the 
this pitching process of hey we want to run experiments as an experiment itself you know and create a whole experiment sequence and see what works the way you have to talk about this in your company to get it running etc um but yeah uh david uh thanks a lot for taking the time with us to explain the thinking behind the book and uh, some cases that has been really really helpful uh, so when is the book coming out and where can uh, listeners get it? Yeah, so the book's called Testing Business Ideas, and I partnered with Strategizer and Alex Osterwalder to to create this book. Um, you can get a free sample on their site. If you go to strategizer.com, you can uh, download a free PDF of uh, a snippet of the book. Uh, if you want the full printed book, it's uh, available on Amazon on November 12th. And so... Uh, we're really excited about it. We've had uh, a bunch of pre-orders already and a lot of excitement around the book. So I think the timing's right. And I think um, it's something that in the market, there's a gap right now. And I think um, my job to be done for the book is uh, <laughs> if you have a new business idea, you want to rapidly test it so that you don't spend time building something nobody wants. And so I feel like it serves that job pretty well. And so I'm really excited for people to to read it and finally get it in their hands. Yeah, I, I just looked at a teaser a few days ago, uh, the teaser we were talked about. So the one you can get on the Strategizer's website. It's really amazing. I just love the way you uh, lay out the different experiments, the pros and cons, like the time it's going to take, the setup uh, time, the runtime, the evidence strength, the cost, etc. I think this is really helpful. Like if you're not sure which uh, experiment to use, when, how to use the sequences, etc. So it's a really handy book to have, definitely at your disposal, you know, when you're brainstorming what to do next. So, um, yeah, thanks, David, for uh, taking the time to actually write this thing to to put it all together. Awesome. And thanks for having me on, on your podcast. Thank you. Cool. So that's everything in today's episode. If you have any questions, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's probably the best source. And as I said in the beginning, like if you want to learn more about the business, you can also go to beyonduses.com and download or subscribe to the seven-day mini MBA email course. But I definitely recommend also picking up David's book. I've seen the digital preview and it really reads amazing. So I already pre-ordered it and I think it's going to be a type of book that really helps to have in your project space when you're thinking of creating new experiments and testing ideas. So that's all in this episode. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.